Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we're speaking with Alex Guverich, a managing director with Javelin Venture Partners, a fund that is focused on early stage investments out of Silicon Valley that were started by former entrepreneurs. So Alex, thanks for joining us today. We recently discovered that you and I got started as affiliates of the same network, and that was our start in venture. So I thought it appropriate to ask you first to tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, we just found out that coincidence. It's interesting. So right after Stanford undergrad, I helped co-found a company called UMA in the consumer electronics voice over IP space. And I did everything in that company from product management to operations and consumer marketing, business development. I helped build it to 2 million subscribers and eventually got to 150 million in revenue and became a public company. But we were backed by Draper Fisher Jurvetson, which is, you know, the the point of overlap that we had. And so kind of at the tail end of my experience at UMA, I got to know the DFJ folks really well. And they came to me with a pretty interesting proposition, which was help them build a venture fund focused on an emerging market in Eastern Europe from scratch. And for me, I'd never considered venture before at all. It felt like a really interesting merger of some of my passions, one being entrepreneurship, the other one, economic development, and international relations is something that I've had a passion for. And I was actually born in Ukraine and speak Russian, and we immigrated as a family at the fall of the Soviet Union. So I always had a curiosity of that world and how to be a part of it. So I jumped in and helped the team there build a venture fund focused on Eastern Europe. We raised $120 million, made some investments, did a lot of economic development and innovation sort of infrastructure work and dispelling the gospel of Silicon Valley to Eastern Europe. And that was kind of my start of venture. And then I guess, yeah, you guys were part of the network as well. And we just found out that point of overlap. Yeah. For the record, I got started with Draper Atlantic, which was the first Draper named affiliate. That was at the beginning of Tim's vision to create a global network of VCs. And the Draper Venture Network continues in a different form, but a lot of the early participants are not affiliated anymore. Right, right. But yeah, they, they sourced a lot of good deals through that, you know, Skype, Baidu. So <laughs> for sure. Yeah, for sure. He was ahead of his time. Yes. And how did you end up connecting with the Javelin team? Yeah. So at the end of that DFJ experience, I went back I wanted to focus more on more traditional entrepreneurship and venture in, in the US and California. I got my MBA at Stanford and I joined Javelin right after that experience in 2011. Javelin had gotten started in 2008. So this was at the tail end of their first fund. So I joined pretty much for the beginning of fund two. And how important was it to you all for part of the fund strategy to all be former founders, at least the founding team? Yeah, I mean, that is the main tenet of of Javelin. It's a fund built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. My two other partners, Noah and Jed, are also former entrepreneurs. Noah built two companies 
MyPoint, which was the largest online loyalty program that ended up going public and ultimately was bought by United Airlines. And then he helped co-found Keyhole, which was acquired by Google and became Google Earth. And he spent four years at Google building out the entire geospatial products team, laying the infrastructure for Google Maps API. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah, exactly. You know, literally experienced with a product that's touched billions of people. And my partner, Jed, was early online real estate entrepreneur and a pioneer of that space and built a company called move.com, which had a great exit. And so, you know, that, that was what appealed to me about Javelin the most was working with other entrepreneurs, particularly at the stage that we invest in, which where the labels of today, it's called seed, post-seed and early series A. Really, we invest one to $5 million and we partner with entrepreneurs before they figured everything out. <laughs> we actually enjoy that level of risk and helping them build the right foundation for scalable growth and building transformational businesses. That's kind of how we fool ourselves that as former entrepreneurs, we still get to scratch that entrepreneurial itch and help them figure that stuff out. So that was really appealing to me. And also obviously helping Javelin, which was relatively new at the time, build a foundation, build a brand, felt entrepreneurial in its own right. And it's been a great experience. It's been almost 10 years now that I've been there. And is there a specific focus in a sector or what's the strategy of the fund other than investing early? Yeah. So we are generalists. We invest across various sectors. Our lens is more of a fundamentally driven one. It's a fundamental lens. One of the biggest things that we look for is really what kind of leverage does the company have in its distribution strategy or business model that allows it to scale to high levels of revenue quickly? Maybe that's a you know, longer winded way of saying capital efficient, right? And so what is unique about their strategies that allows them to get big fast? And then how can we help them essentially iterate through a bunch of those strategies to get to a scalable growth? That precludes a bunch of sectors that we don't do. So we don't do hardware, which is ironic, given that I came from the hardware background. We don't do clean tech. We don't do uh, a lot of deep infrastructure, anything with really intense sales cycles like we try to avoid, which leads us down the path to being pretty proficient in a few sectors. So SaaS, consumer marketplaces, we're very proficient in, and we've had a lot of great investments like Thumbtack and Masterclass that are on the marketplace side. And then FinTech as well. We do a lot of FinTech. We'll also do digital health and we'll do some gaming here and there, but those are like the bread and butter sectors for Javelin. Our unique thing though, I would say, and I don't know how unique it is necessarily, but we're not big pontificators. We're not sitting there saying like, we know what the vision of the future is. We think that's the entrepreneur's job. And our job is to listen to them, hear them out, and try and understand what vision they're trying to paint and how they get there, and then assess whether we believe in that story and how we can uniquely help them get there. And that's why we consider ourselves generalists, but we're not the investors that say, hey, this is the sector or this is the thing that's going to happen and we're going to go find the companies in that space. That's just not authentic to us. That being said, are there any certain themes within those particular sectors that you guys are really excited about or interested in currently? Yeah, there's a ton of them. I've seen firsthand the, the power of online education, right? And the fact that where the world is headed in terms of there's a need to completely re-educate and retrain a lot of the workforce, right? So there's a huge right. opportunity to do that in a personalized way. So we, we do that. I think more broadly speaking, thematically, we look for technologies that work for people instead of against them and are really trying to help a, a great number of people. And by mm -hmm. definition, by doing that, you're mass market and therefore have a big market to go after. We're not as drawn to technologies that like automate people's jobs away. That's just not something that we've been personally drawn to. Right. And so that's why if you look at our biggest companies like Masterclass, which is about 
educating people and about giving them access to the best talent in the world to learn from, or Thumbtack, which is really about how do you empower a small business and a single proprietor to be able to make a living and generate more revenue on their own and compete with the big brands and the, the trend away from that that's been happening over the last 20 years. So how do we use technology to empower human beings versus the opposite? So that's what broadly we're attracted to. Right. And speaking of masterclass and thumbtack, do you want to talk a little bit about how you met the team and what initially got you really excited and how that experience has been going so far? Yeah, absolutely. So with masterclass, which we've had the pleasure of partnering with proof on. Absolutely. I've known the founder, David, since business school, we actually were classmates and good friends. We both went into venture. He was at a fund called Harrison Metal, which is earlier stage than where we invest typically. And so we collaborated a lot, just being friends at venture. But I knew he wanted to start a company. So he raised the seed round to kind of explore ideas. But the moment they solidified the concept of Masterclass, I was one of his first phone calls. And we got together. He told me about the concept in, I think it was 2014. So this was like a year before they launched. I was stricken by the idea. I mean, to me, it actually felt like pretty obvious of a concept. And for those that don't know maybe what Masterclass is, the concept you do want to... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, a, it's an online education company. They get the best people in the world of a particular topic to teach a course in that topic. So you could think about like learning tennis from Serena Williams or screenplay writing from Aaron Sorkin, cooking from Gordon Ramsay. And so now they have about 90 classes at this point that they sell on a subscription basis. And the company has been just going gangbusters, growing immensely, primarily a U.S. audience, but also growing internationally at this point. It's a phenomenal business. So yeah, I talked to David about it in 2014. He told me the initial idea, but I'm like, how are you going to get these celebrities to say yes to you? He's like, Alex, I don't think you understand. And he slides a piece of paper over and there's like 10 top names, like the biggest names you could think of. These people have all said yes to me already. Like, how did you do this? How did you get them to say yes with no brand, no revenue, like they don't know who you are, but that was one of the early signals that he really knew how to get the marketplace started. He was able mm -hmm. to get that supply going. Oh, yeah, that's the hardest part. That's the hardest part, absolutely. Was it the strength of his persona or was it some, did he know people or what was the DNA? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it is. it was him. It was the strength of his persona. He's very passionate about this concept and it really comes through. He's very, he's charming. He's very, he's very persuasive, but not in the pushy way, right? It's been manifested in terms of how who he was able to recruit and then in terms of instructors and also on the team going forward. That's a superpower. He was able to go to these individuals and say, look, I'm not trying to sell you snake oil, like what they're used to hearing. I'm passionate about online education. I come from Silicon Valley. And I want to create a legacy for you, or at least preserve your legacy and make you a part of this broader community of other brilliant people. So yes, you'll get some money from a ref share or whatever, but it's really more about the other factors. And that really resonated with these instructors because they're not used to hearing these type of pitches. They're used to hearing like, hey, come promote this product or promote that product. And a lot of the times you don't know what's real, what's not, and what's scammy and what's not. And so by being super authentic, he was able to get that going. And then once we got that brand flywheel going, the next set of instructors was easier to get. And obviously then we were able to get the students to come in and we really got that whole thing moving, right? So yeah, we invested nine months before they launched and helped them think through launch strategy, 
and initial business model ideas and just how to get this whole thing off the ground. And they launched in May of 2015. And from then on, it's really been phenomenal to see the company get into the zeitgeist of the culture of the United States and also just deliver on their promise of bringing this access to genius to so many people. So that was phenomenal to see. And that's one of the proudest things that I've been involved with. So really happy to be a part of it. No, definitely. What's your favorite class so far? Might be a tough question. (laughs) Oh, that's super hard. For me, it's uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. So she's a historian. She's written a ton of historical accounts and biographies of great presidents of the United States. Her most famous one is uh, Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln and how he built his cabinet. Hearing her talk about what makes a great leader from a historical perspective and how they got to that point, it's phenomenal. I've read a lot of her books, but then hearing her masterclass and how she relates that to present day, fascinating stuff. She provides a very unique lens of how the world might view what we're living through now, 50 years from now or 100 years from now, because she does that for you know people that were living 50 years ago and 100 years ago. And actually, that's one of the other things I'm really excited about masterclass. This is kind of like a far out concept, but the fact that we're preserving this, the best of human knowledge for millennia to come, that's amazing. That's like a modern day library of Alexandria, right? Yeah. I mean, imagine if we could take classes from Shakespeare or Da Vinci. Yeah. People in the future are going to be able to do that starting from this point in time in history. And maybe we're the company to do it. So truly is a company that has a multi-millennial business plan, right? If we play our cards right. So it's a little out there, but you know, I I like thinking about that. (laughs) I'd also love to hear the story of carbon health because digital health is accelerating, obviously with COVID. I think that health really needs help with technology and the provision of services and quality of services and all of that. And I think carbon health seems to be executing increasingly well. And so I'd love to hear that story. Absolutely. That's a company we're extremely proud to be a part of. We partnered with the entrepreneur there. His name is Aaron Bali at their seed round. He was already a successful entrepreneur. He actually built Udemy. That's his first company. Another education. Another online education company. When I've talked to him about entrepreneurship, it's like, what is the most stodgy, hardest to infiltrate sector there possibly is? And let me go disrupt that. So he started with education. I would say he did a pretty darn good job of that, given how successful Udemy has been. And then after that run for him, he's like, well, what's a harder sector to to infiltrate (laughs) in education? Healthcare. Okay. That's my next goal. And so that was sort of the genesis of how he got going with Carbon Health. And yeah, I mean, it's been phenomenal to see them progress. The concept behind it is partnering with existing urgent care clinics, rebranding them Carbon Health, and then providing them with a tech-enabled software layer that pretty much gives you a concierge-like experience, similar to what you would expect from like a One Medical, right? But One Medical is for very affluent. It's pretty expensive in terms of the subscription model there. And so Carbon Health is trying to bring that to the masses, works with your insurance. It's distributed in a way that's accessible to people of all socioeconomic levels. So we're trying to bring that level of healthcare to literally everyone. And so they've pursued that goal very rapidly by, again, partnering with existing urgent care clinics, sometimes building their own, sometimes partnering with top brand hospitals. And their growth has been phenomenal. The other thing that they've done is when the pandemic hit, they reacted super quickly and got on the front lines to really leverage the infrastructure and the technology that they had to deliver initially tests and now vaccines. At what point they had done 30% of all tests in the Bay Area. 
Wow. And now with the distribution of vaccines, I don't know if you guys have heard of the effort of, in LA, Dodger Stadium. Right. That's administered by Carbon Health. Oh, wow. So they're distributing all the vaccines there and in certain select states where they're operating and they're doing that as well. So they really stepped on the front lines to really help people and leverage what they've done. And what's interesting about that and this has been the case with a lot of telehealth companies in this pandemic year, is that it's forced people to try out telehealth and try out these new technologies, not because they necessarily wanted to, but because they had no choice. But then they tried it and they realized, wait, this is a way better way of getting care. I don't necessarily have to go to the doctor's office or whatever healthcare I receive. It's then tracked and it's transparent and it's a persistent medical record for me for the rest of time. And I can go to any number of facilities to get that service done. It's just a better way of doing it. So now that the pandemic sort of forced people to try it, they realized it's better. Those patients are being retained at levels that we're confident will remain after the pandemic because they've just seen a better way uh, of experiencing healthcare. And so that's the big bet on carbon health. And we think in you know several years, there's going to be thousands of carbon health clinics all around the country. And we couldn't be more excited about where they're going. What I was particularly impressed by is the way they leverage the doctor's time, right? Because the doctor is the most expensive resource in healthcare, and the doctor has been bogged down. And I know this because my spouse is a physician. They've been bogged down doing administrative work. And I think that's the beauty of using technology to take care of the administrative duties so they can focus on delivering care. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why most of their clinics are partnerships with existing urgent care doctors. They go to them and say, hey, look, let us handle the, the back office, the technology piece of this. You do what you do best, which is delivering care. And we will literally hear the numbers. Here's what we've done with other clinics, how we will make you more profitable and more productive over time so you could deliver care better to more people. Right? And being such a hands-on investor, when do you know when to kind of step in and get your hands dirty and, and help versus take a step back? Yeah, our style is a true partnership where we're looking for founders who are looking for an investor that they could view as an extension of the team. But it's not in an overbearing way like, hey, what's going on? What are you guys doing? It's more like, hey, give us homework, put us to work. Let us go hustle for you in, in whatever direction that you most need at that time, whether it's you know a critical hire, whether it's helping brainstorm product strategy, distribution strategy, what have you. So it's more at the beck and call of the entrepreneur versus like, hey, here's what we want you to do. It's not, it's not that at all. So we seek entrepreneurs that want that. Some entrepreneurs who are, they want hands-off investors and that's fine. And we can be hands-off, but it's just, you know, we prefer a positive working relationship where they will give us homework and they will give us things to do. Because the thing that I get most excited about is when I'm able to say, hey, I did this for the company in a tangible way. Right. And it's not just like, see you at the board meeting in three months. And I gave you some high level strategy advice and you're like, yeah, 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 great. That was, that was nice. Thank you. Let me get back to my job. I actually want them to give me stuff to do that. I can say, Hey, I helped the company do this. So it, it's that it's constant conversation. Again, we'll pick entrepreneurs who we want to interact with a lot and they want to interact with us. So it's who can we be friends with actually, right? Yeah. Where, <laughs> When you get a phone call from them or a text from them, you're like, yes, I'm excited to get this, right? And I'm excited to talk to them. And so you're constantly in contact. There is no like unnatural, we want this to happen or that to happen. It's, we know what's going on. They know what we're thinking and we're in lockstep with them, given that relationship that we've hopefully been able to build pre-investment and then post-investment. That makes a ton of sense. And what do you think distinguishes a great founder? 
Yeah, that's a great question. This is the, the art form of venture capital and probably <laughs> <Right>. the <laughs> most important question, right? We look for specific signals in the company in general before we invest, but specifically on the founder side, they have to be mission and vision driven and authentic to that cause. I gave the anecdote about David from Masterclass and how authentic Masterclass was for him. We look for that, that authenticity to the problem that they're trying to solve. That's a big thing. The other element, we do really gravitate towards entrepreneurs who are data-driven and have shown that they're able to create a internal philosophy around how to get to the right answers. Not what the right answer is, but how to get to the right answers. Mm -hmm. And that's something we saw at Thumbtack and at Masterclass. And we try to identify that in all of our portfolio companies. Like, hey, we don't know how we're going to necessarily get there, like what the right answer is. But here's our internal methodology. That typically means being very data-driven, having lots of dashboards, having lots of internal permission to run lots of different hypotheses and run different tests. You know, over time, you know, you do a thousand of those and then you move the needle, right? Yeah, that admission and self-awareness of I might not know, that no one always knows the, the right answer is so important. Totally, totally. And that, that's actually my third one, which is related to the data-driven one. It's intellectual honesty. Right. We want someone that here's what, where we have gaps. Here's where we need help. Or here's what we just don't know. And we need help figuring this out. Or we're going to figure it out, but here's how we're going to do it. The thing we try to avoid are the people that say, hey, I can't admit a mistake. Everything's roses. Everything is great. That's a red flag, right? We know that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think in life in general. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's also a red story. flag. So you're an internationally minded person having grown up overseas. What is your take on the global evolution of the venture ecosystem and having startups now that can start anywhere? I'm biased given our background at Draper, but I, I, I do buy that vision that innovation can come from anywhere. I'm not saying that it's the end of Silicon Valley or anything like that. I still think that's the epicenter and broadly speaking, the US, but I do think that great companies can be built pretty much anywhere. The most important thing is really the innovation climate from this is more of a government related question. Is it set up to foster entrepreneurship? Are the right types of IP protection laws in place? Is there enough R&D dollars going into the innovation economy? Is it a free enough economy where they can do that? The top-down stuff, and this is something I learned in my time doing the Draper thing in Eastern Europe, very top-down, right? Like the government saying, we have to do this. When you have the government saying that, run away. That's not good. But there's plenty of economies out there where it is a lot more bottoms up and we're seeing great things coming out of Europe. We have one investment in Africa. We have one in India. I don't want to paint ourselves as global investors. You know, we've got, we have global deals, but we don't necessarily focus on global companies, but we're opportunistic about them as they come in, recognizing that great companies can be built there. And certainly you're seeing great funds setting up offices all over the world. Europe getting a lot of attention these days. Israel has been great for a long, long time. And India, China and all that, right? So big believer in it. Where's the first place you're going to go to after COVID internationally? I know what you want me to say. And it's actually true. Greece. <laughs> no, no. I'm honestly curious. I'm not even Well, so, okay. There's the realistic place I'll probably go, which is London, because I have lots of friends there and I have actually, I have a portfolio company there. I actually thought you were going to say Ukraine. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm good. And you guys have the DFJ thing in common, but we have the Odessa thing in common. That's true. We do. We do, <laughs> we do have the Odessa thing in common. I was born in Odessa, which is on, on the Black Sea coast. Beautiful city. I'm very proud to be from there. and Love Odessans. And when I learned about, you know, people with Odessan roots... 
I, I, <laughs> feel, I feel the bond, you know, but I, I don't know if that's the first place I would go. My favorite place in the world, as I told you, this is Santorini. So that's where I would want to go. That's <laughs> the first place. But realistically, it's London. Got it. And, and Alex, just for everyone's knowledge, has more courage than Thanasis and I do because he actually rode one of the donkeys on, on probably the steepest hill I've ever seen in my life. I, I did. It was terrifying, <laughs> but I, I felt sad for the donkey. I'm like, he has to do this day in, day out, you know? Yeah, pained me too. So switching over to our four standard question segment, this is something that we ask all of our guests and we're really looking forward to hearing your answers. Our first question is our MVCA question. So the National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you could change about the VC industry or one policy that you'd advocate for, what would it be? Yeah, and I think the the big thing that's on a lot of people's minds right now is all this talk about the capital gains treatment that I think in the last administration, even in the current administration, there's always this threat that it'll be treated differently and treated as income. I think that's a big problem. And I think it comes from a lack of awareness of like what venture is versus private equity and hedge funds and how critical venture is to the innovation economy. So that's probably the most top of mind thing that I think everyone's thinking about. And that's where I feel like NVCA is on the front lines of making sure that they're educating Congress and the legislature on. So that's probably number one. Number two, I think we need to think about how to let more people be a part of the innovation economy from an investment standpoint. So there's been some chatter around loosening up accredited investor rules and letting more people be able to invest in startups, whether that's through syndicates or on their own directly, but not have such a high requirement. Because I do think that there's income inequality gap is spreading because we have only a certain level of affluence allows you to participate in that kind of astronomic growth. So let's open that up to more people, right, in a responsible way. I don't know what the right answer is, but that's one area that could use a lot more attention, a lot more advocacy, and a lot more inclusivity. For sure. Number two is if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? Uh, I would be either a historian or a biographer. I think this goes back to the that master makes, class. Yeah, master questions. class, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've always, a lot of people hated history class. I loved history class. I loved learning about the past. It was always like a story to me. And I kind of knew how it would unfold, but just what were the turning points in history? My favorite podcast is this one called Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. It's amazing. It just teleports you to that time. And you get to learn these are human beings like us. They were wired the same way, had the same DNA, and everything was similar. How did they deal with this completely different environment and how did they adapt? And I think there's a lot of lessons to get from that. And then the biography side, you know, as I mentioned with Doris Kearns Goodwin, I love learning about what made the greats great. What was the process that they went through? And this is something that actually has fueled me as an investor. Because if you look at the great leaders in history who have affected the most amount of change, they were always standing on someone else's shoulders and they had somebody in their corner really pushing them or opening doors for them and advocating for them. And I kind of see that as my role. I'm not that person, but I'm the person that hopefully will help those entrepreneurs achieve that level of impact. And so I love reading biographies that talk about that journey and how they were helped along the way and what were those turning points for them to catapult them to the level that they ended up getting to. So those are the things I enjoy reading about. And that's what I think I would be, I would be doing if I was doing venture. What's your favorite time period? Classics. I mean, definitely ancient Greece, ancient Rome. Yep. Third question is who is someone that you look up to and why? Yeah. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and say two people. One, I've already talked about David Rogier, the founder of Masterclass before, but he's 
definitely one of those people and we're kindred spirits because one of the founding tenets of Masterclass came from his grandmother, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. And she instilled a lesson into him that the one thing that they can't take away from you is your education. And that was the driving force behind Masterclass. And for me, I have four grandparents who are also, all four of them were survivors of the Holocaust. And that lesson was deeply instilled into me as well. So seeing David take that and execute and create an amazing company like this, that's really the foundation of that is that legacy. It comes from my heart as well. And just being able to be a part of that with him. I owe him a deep debt of gratitude for building this company and allowing me to be along for the ride. So I would say David is one of the people I admire the most. And the other person is my grandfather, who, as I mentioned, was also a survivor of the Holocaust. When he was 12 years old, he engineered an escape from the ghetto for himself, his older sister and mom. They dug a hole in the ground in the forest and lived there for three years behind enemy lines. And there was constant skirmishes going on between the, the Germans and the Red Army, and they figured out a way to make it through and survive that ordeal. And he was 12 years old, so I was thinking, you know, what was I doing when I was 12, you know, watching cartoons, complaining about school or something ridiculous in, in comparison. And so I've learned a lot from him. I've learned a lot about life and adaptability and keeping a positive outlook no matter what. So he's a, a true hero and someone I'll love till the end of my days. My grandpa's a, he's a true hero. Yeah, no, certainly. What a story. My gosh, that's incredible. Lastly, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Again, we'll cheat with two, but I got an amazing piece of advice from, I took a class from Andy Ratcliffe, who is the founder of Benchmark and now the CEO of Wealthfront. He said something that made me think about the concept of failure. He says that no one remembers your failures, they remember your successes. And so going into venture, you never know the full extent of the risk that you're taking. And so figure out a reason to say yes and take more shots on goal. That was a lesson for me that there's always a reason to say no, but find the reasons to say yes. And at the end of the day, if you're able to find some great companies and great entrepreneurs, that's the thing that's going to matter. And the fact that maybe you struck out eight out of 10 times, don't worry about it, right? Just keep going. That was a big piece of advice for me and one I've executed on in, in, in my venture career. And the other one was from another legendary VC, Peter Wendell who was the founder of Sierra Ventures, just said, don't take yourself too seriously. Be self-deprecating. Don't be that person that thinks he knows everything in the room. If I had to describe my style, it was that, it's that. I think that's, that's who I am authentically. But hearing someone like that say that as well, like reaffirmed and gave me confidence that you don't have to be a, a know-it-all or anything like that. And don't take it too seriously. <laughs> don't take yourself too seriously. Well, Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. We enjoyed learning about you and about your fun. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Really fun conversation. And thank you for having me. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc.